Ladies and gentlemen, I'm truly excited about this next session. I'd like to ask Linda Silas, Bonnie Castillo and Shay Candish to please take their seats uh, in the chat pit uh, as I explain to our audience the, the session. This is all about reflections on the pandemic and how nurses and midwives can be heard as the health system moves forward. And it's a really marvellous opportunity to hear uh, from three people from three different nations. I'll give you a full introduction before each person speaks for 15 minutes and please start the questions on, on Slido. But I'm welcoming to the stage Linda Silas, the President of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions, a voice of nearly 200,000 unionised nurses and nursing students. So Linda, if you could wave and they can make you welcome. Uh, welcome also to Bonnie Castillo, Executive Director of the National Nurses United USA. Over 175,000 members nationwide, and this is the largest number in US history. Uh, a round of applause. And also speaking today, Shay Candish, the Assistant General Secretary of the New South Wales Nursing and Midwives Association. And we have over 74,000 members in New South Wales and the national body has 310,000 members. So amazing. So I'm welcoming our Canadian friend first, Linda Silas, to the lectern. Uh, the, the microphones can be used later for questions, but you're welcome to use the lectern. Uh, Linda, as I said, is the president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. Her clinical background is in ICU emergency and labour and delivery. If anyone needs to have a child during the course of the presentation, uh, Linda will pop into the audience and work on you. Uh, she's worked as a union leader at local, provincial, national and international levels. And it all started when she was a single mum with a 13-month-year-old son, so absolutely amazing. Her passion, of course, is healthcare, which she believes, like education and decent work, are a human right. And the motto of the organisation is, where knowledge meets know-how. Please make Linda welcome. Bonjour tout le monde, un grand plaisir d'être ici. It's unbelievable we're here and I hate it because it's a dark room, I can't see any faces. Oh. Anyway, I better get started because for those who know me, I'm French, I'm female, and I'm a union leader so I can go on and on and on. So, I'm uh, very pleased to be here. It's been more than two, it's a th almost three years. This is the first for Bonnie and I, the first international conference we've had. So, we're so proud to shake cages in uh, New South Wales and really join you in your fight. Catherine, Melissa, and Jess, and all of those who speak out, so important because yes, we don't get the wins of 16 extra nurses every time we speak up, but what we do get is that self-satisfying feeling, I have done something, I can stand proud, stand my shoulders back, and really give, excuse my language, but shit to those who deserve it. And just for those, and for those who might think that shit is a swear word, we're nurses. It's a biological movement. So when I say it, it's all good. There's a song which I think your organizers should find from a Canadian group. It's uh, uh, Raise a Little Hell. And I think that's what we need to start doing is raise a little hell everywhere across the world. So, land acknowledgement. I can't do it beautifully as Matthew and, I can't remember, 
Tim, I think the, the second name, but I acknowledge where I'm coming from, uh, part of Turtle Island. It's something we started to do in Canada probably about five years ago, but I also acknowledge the land that uh, we sit here uh, in uh, Sydney. CFNU has the uh, amazing maitre d' was telling Bonnie, I think that's what's going to be my gig when I decide to retire, because I'm not as old as Brett and Judah, just to let you know. <laughs> but when I retire, I think I want a gig like that. So we are eight, we're 13 province and territories in Canada, eight belong to CFNU and the nursing student, that's what gives us about the 200 and uh, 100,000, but we're about to rejoin with the British Columbia Nurses Union, which uh, will add 47,000 members. I can't wait to announce that very soon. So COVID, what did it did? You know, it's almost like the perfect storm. We knew we had a shortage. You heard Professor uh, Bertram this morning talk about it. We knew it was coming. We were all getting ready. The last time GNU was here, the Global Nurses United, we were talking about the hardworking condition, about nursing wanting to leave, about we had to fight for safe patient care, safe patient staffing. Like really, we couldn't understand. And then COVID hit. So in January 2020, we were fighting for uh, ratios in my country, enhancing our public uh, health care services. We we're talking about a national pharma care program, free prescription drugs for everyone living in Canada. We were talking about home care, mental health, aged care, and then the pandemic hit, and we almost went in the dark ages. I couldn't believe it. I had wor uh, industrial workers, construction workers calling me and say, Linda, walk off the job site. You're fighting for proper PPE, are you nuts? We're in 2020, safety of workers should be number one, but no nurses in my country, in the US, in your countries, were fighting for proper PPEs, and no wonder we got sick. So we went forward. Um, let's remember that the workforce and when we're talking about uh health human resource we're talking about the supply and demand and we as unions we cannot forget it's a supply and demand so it's up to us and the employer regardless who your employer is to work together and fix it the governments are there to give us the tools give us the proper funding but we're the expert in health human resource us at nurses, we're going to fancy it up because we're kind of health professionals and we have colleges and you know we're kind of fancy. But at the bottom line, you're a worker just like the construction workers, just like the teachers, just like everyone else. We just have regulated language that makes us professional. But it's a supply and demand and right now the demand is way too high for the supply and it's impacting patient safety. So how do we speak in Canada? Well, James talked about it and gave many, many graphs. Uh, I'm gonna try not to repeat it. But what I hope you will retain here is that your fight is our fight. You'll hear similar messages from Bonnie. It's, the, it's a global issue and it goes back, you heard James, 1945. I wasn't born in 1945, neither was Judith, by the way, you know, it's not that old. But it, it is insulting to read those reports. I was part of the uh, 2002 Canadian Nursing Advisory Committee, big committee, 
that uh, after the 1990 shortage of nurses in Canada, the government of Canada created, we had 52 recommendations. Well, we're 20 years later and we're repeating those same recommendations because blind and stupid governments didn't follow it and we're still in the same mess, so we need to continue. You saw these statistics. When you think about it, you're well staffed in per population. But what people forget is countries like yours and mine, which are humongous. We're the biggest, by the way, just in case. <laughs> but we're humongous and tiny, tiny little population. We have less people in the whole country of Canada than the state of California. And then we look at by 100 population. Well, when I have a province, my smallest province, 140,000 people, and they, the government says, oh, your, your nurse po by population is a lot higher than anywhere else. Yeah, right, I have to spread myself out so much. So we need to change those numbers and really look at better data. So there I move. The shortage, uh, when I looked at the numbers here, it's really, uh, look at healthcare as a whole. And we're really working with health economists in Canada to put healthcare as part of GDP, the global, uh, not the global, gross domestic product, to see how do we fit, because we're 10 to 12% of the gross domestic product in my country is healthcare. You need more than roads to fix the economy. Yes, we need to get to work, but we need to be healthy to get to work. So we're bringing that arguments to all our politicians and say, you need to do more than building roads. And we have about 2 million employees in healthcare, and that's from the personal care workers to the cleaners to the highest level specialists. And we're about 8% of GDP is just a healthcare workforce. And for nurses, we have 34,000 right now vacancies. And we know that the vacancy rate since the beginning of the pandemic went up 133% because one in two nurses are saying, bye-bye, I'm looking for the exit sign, I wanna leave. And we know that uh, one in five healthcare workers, so that's the whole healthcare workforce, are looking to retire early. And we need to change that very quickly. So I do have some good news. You know, we, um, we have studies after studies after studies, you know, from the burnout. It wasn't the Linda Silas that doesn't understand mental health more than that, that thinks, you know, yes, I'm burnout. I just want to hide underneath my table and think, okay, tomorrow I'll be okay. We hired the best researchers in mental health to look at what was happening with our members. And when I saw the original report that was pre-pandemic, the December pre-pandemic, I said, I can't publish that. 31% had suicidal ideation, which meant they thought and they thought of a plan. Well, let's be frank here. A nurse knows how to end her life or his life or their life if they want to. But, you know, I said, I can't. I'm talking to new grads, you know, and 94% today are showing signs of burnout. 46% are showing sign of clinical burnouts. That means they need more than the Linda Silas to help them pick them up. They need clinical help. We don't even have enough clinicians in Canada to help just our nurses. So we partnered with Health Canada, because Health Canada, which is our federal body for health, was also very concerned. And they created these online tools for all the nerds in the room, because being a nerd today is very cool, just to say. But they have online tools, you know, and it's free and it's available and it's there. Anyway, 
But then we meet with all our premiers. So us, it's provinces, you guys, it's states, they have an annual meeting, and it was just in July. And they agreed with us, even if they're, some of them are the deepest conservative you ever met. And I had to sit in a room, shake hands, kiss babies, all of that. But they agreed with us, we needed federal leadership. We don't need the federal government to tell us what to do. Remember, the federal government's there for lead, for money, for tools. We as employers and unions have to get the right answers, do what's needed in rural Canada, what's needed in urban Canada. Newfoundland, Labrador, another small little province in uh, my country, announced yesterday an extra $25 an hour for nurses to go work in hard to recruit. That's almost double in new grads. So some are listening. Where is my slides? Oh, my slides are not moving. Oh. My slides are not moving. Okay, good. We're, we're, we're the nerds. Jump up, jump up. Anyway, so uh, I talked about the burnouts, but the number one reason nurses are burning out in my country is because 83% are telling them we don't have enough staff for them to provide good care. So imagine, every day they finish their shift and they feel like they haven't done a good job. And that relates with other, it relates with teachers, with police officers, with reporters. You know, when I tell them, imagine if every shift you finish, you don't have enough time to do your job. And why and what we need is nurse-patient ratios. So what we will do, oh, slides again, so my, I think, ah, oh, there. <laughs> See, the nerds are so quick. So what we need to do is stop the fighting for PPEs. It should be an automatically, the safe staffing should be an automatically, and we need to really move it. I need to move it too, because I'm telling too many stories. Okay, slide please. I'll just say slide please. Top green please, it's a new one. I said, did you wipe it with alcohol? <laughs> I'm just teasing. That's why I go over my time every time. Okay, so the, uh, to recap, the COVID fight, I think we've won it. I think we are safe with PPEs and we will continue. What we're not safe is telling these younger nurses to stay, uh, to stay into nursing and get full-time job. Well, the nerd lied, it's not working. So could you change the slide, please? I love you dearly, but... Okay, solutions. It's about, and you heard James. I was very impressed. I haven't I heard James in a while. Last time I was at a Global Health Human Resource Conference in Dublin. But it, uh, he talked about returning. We need to keep those nurses who went casual or part-time because they can't handle a full-time job, bring them back into a full-time job and guarantee them that 37 or 40 hours a week is the max you're going to do. We're going to give you flex time. We're going to give you a day off when your kids needs a special event. And we're going to give you a safe work life. Those who retired way too early. Like, really? You're 60 years old and you retire? What are you going to do the rest of your life? You're going to work, live until you're 85 years old. Come back in the system and we'll find jobs to mentor. And we need to do that. Next slide, please. Brett, that wasn't up uh, on you, you know. I asked Brett last night, how old are you anyway? Anyway, CFN new plan. It's about the, uh, re uh, the retain. We need to stop the bleed. Like, 
I talk to nurses of all ages and those who are 45 and older and the 55 year old and older, you would have heard me before, they're my spicy nurses. And we need to keep them there. We cannot let them go. So governments have to do like Newfoundland Labrador and say, what will it take? $25 an hour more? Okay, it's not forever, but it is for now. We need, we're in a crisis. And then it's about the return. It's about the recruit. It's telling those young nurses, I'm there for you. Your union's there for you, and we will fix this mess. Next slide, please. That's the wellness together that I talked to you about Health Canada. Next slide. Nurse-patient ratio. We will talk about it. We will implement it. I want collective agreement language like New South Wales got. I want legislation like California got and other states. But I won't give Bonnie speeches. But in 2004 was my first time at one of your professional education day. And guess what the topic was? Nurse-patient ratio. Next slide. You know, nurses were a special breed of people. And being a nurse has to be a good mixture of intelligence and dedication. We know that. But we forget intelligence the number one. You can't be too dumb and be a nurse. You can be dedicated and dumb, but you need some education and you need some intelligence. And our nurses are telling us, I'm smart, Linda Silas. I don't have enough. I'm scared to make a mistake, so you need to fix this. So right now, nurses are really into a motion of going through the motion and looking for the exit sign. We have to stop that. We need to elevate our voice, just like the three, just like the thousands of members in your states. We need to talk about good jobs. We need to respect ourselves. They need to respect ourselves. Fair pay and, of course, safe staffing and safe working condition. Next slide. We need a culture change in healthcare. We, yeah. We, nurses need to stop to be the martyrs of healthcare and get all the crap on us. We are not the hands made of healthcare. We will change it. Next slide. What is important, this is a real picture of, uh, in, it happens, it's in Newfoundland, Labrador, during the winter of a COVID testing clinics. Underneath, they were provided with big skidoo suit, not like your wimpy winter here. I create, like, I went for a walk and I, I had to laugh. I said to Brett and Judah, I think, you know, people in uh, Sydney just buy winter clothes as a fashion statement and they wear it and they don't know what it's about. Like one big poofy coat, like the, almost the Canada goose with the fur and I was walking in my flip-flops and a t-shirt, like really. Anyway, but that, that's real. And what we need is uh, the premiers to get out of the way and to let the experts, which are the unions and the employers find a solution. My dear departed for, for My dear departed father used to say, shit or get off the pot. And that was my message to all the premiers in my country. We're in a crisis. Let us fix it. You pay for it. Next, next slide. So don't worry. We are sticking together. And we will fix this. And can't wait to come back and talk about solutions here in your country, in your state, and in mine. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. Uh
Ladies and gentlemen, Mosibo Koo, go wild, go wild. Now, just before I, I uh, introduce the next speaker, I want to show you something. One thing we share in common is size. I am five foot two, I don't know the new money. And yet these uh, forums, these, uh, this is a, a redeveloped site, and look at this huge box they put in front of us, and they can barely see us. I used to have a job on television, and there was a man whose job it was to bring Miss McCrossan's box. Very odd. But it was a box, and I stood on it. And I'm just thinking, for future conferences, we should request a box so that shorter people of whatever gender can be seen above the parapet, and if necessary, we bring our own box. Okay. You know, evidently, uh, evidently tall people are, are listened to more. I don't know why. S stilts would be acceptable. Ladies and gentlemen, our second speaker is Bonnie Castillo, a registered nurse and executive director of the National Nurses United USA. And uh, Bonnie, as I understand it, you're a member of the California Nurses Association and the National Nurses Organization Committee, and that you're part of the USA's largest union of professional associations of registered nurses, with over 170,000, as I said earlier. Bonnie is globally recognized as a leader, including being named by Time in 2020 as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And it, <laughs> and it all began, of course, as a registered nurse helping to unionise her facility and then working her way to the top. Please make Bonnie welcome. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. And I do have a box, but I did not bring it because you are so accommodating and I feel like you just lined us all up. Was that part of the, you know, it's like, we, oh no, no, I'm gonna leave my mask on and that might be, have something to do with how many people we lost. But I just have to tell you, um, first, hello and thank you so much for having us here. You have incredible leadership. When I look at the lineup and see Ju Judith and Brett and Shay, um, you know, I. I feel safe, I will say that. I feel very, very safe. And I love your word, ballistic, although I have to say, in my country right now, it has a little different connotation. Uh, but eventually, we will be able to use that. Um, so um, I just have, you know, after all we've been through over these past couple of years, it's so good to be here today together and I think we all know that no one is really safe from COVID, right? Or any other infectious disease unless everyone is safe. Every patient, every nurse, everywhere in the world. And we also know that an injury to one is an injury to all. So we have a direct stake at what's happening in each other's country during this global pandemic. And I want to tell you a little bit about what's the situation in my country right now, where our government and employers failed miserably to protect us, leading to well over a million deaths, including 5,200 healthcare workers with 494 registered nurses and 29 NNU members among the dead. In America, if America had a universal healthcare system such as yours, it wouldn't have been this bad. But as you know, we don't have a healthcare system that's based on human need. We have 
a healthcare market that puts profits before people and leaves tens of millions without care. We have a hospital industry that sacrifices nurses' health and safety to the bottom line. According to a recent Yale School of Public Health, uh, we could have saved 338,000 lives throughout the pandemic and saved more than $100 billion if we had a universal healthcare system. Thousands of healthcare workers would still be alive today if our profit-driven employers hadn't spent decades slashing supply costs and, and understaffing our hospitals and every other public health, our workplaces in general. But when COVID hit, instead of rushing in to, with the protections that we needed, as we were rushing in, our employers kept hid N95s behind lock and key and tried to implement very unsafe PPE decontamination processes. I don't know if you experienced that, but of, instead of staffing up, they actually lobbied to undo safe staffing ratios. Now, I know that we've discussed this, but the industry you know, claims that their hands are tied because of the nursing shortage in America. But while we are definitely suffering a deep crisis, a severe staffing crisis, there's no shortage of nurses. There are five, over five million RNs with active licenses in the US, but only three and a half million who are working. What we have is a shortage of good permanent nursing jobs where RNs are fully valued for our work at the bedside through safe staffing, strong union protections, and a safe and healthy workplace. So in fact, as this was occurring, the healthcare industry actually laid off a half a million workers at the height of the pandemic. Despite receiving massive government bailouts and posting record profits, years of organized abandonment has caused an epidemic of moral injury and PTSD in the nursing profession. And this was long before COVID. The pandemic has simply served to amplify that stress. Nearly one in five healthcare workers in the US have quit their jobs since March of 2020. Not because they can't cut it, but because they can't handle being systematically denied the resources and protections they need to do their jobs. The severity of the COVID crisis is also deeply connected to the other social and political crises that we're facing. I recently um, read a New York Times article that argued that a key reason your country saved thousands of lives while COVID killed a million Americans is that Australians display a much, much higher levels of trust in science and institutions, and especially in one another. Given what I've told you, and I know it's a bit negative, but I have to get it out there, there is positive here, is, is, is it any wonder that 34% of Americans say, only 34%, say that they trust the healthcare system compared with 76% of Australians? Is it any wonder so many Americans have lost trust in once revered institutions like the US Centers for Disease Control who were constantly issuing 
shifting dangerous and adequate public health guidelines under pressure from the Trump administration, but also from the healthcare industry. Is it any wonder we're seeing a breakdown of social cohesion in the US when police are murdering black Americans with impunity, when billionaire wealth has surged by 70% during the pandemic and our democratic institutions are teetering on the brink, all under the shadow of the climate emergency. These overlapping crises didn't just happen out of thin air. They're the result of capital's 50 years assault on workers and unions. They're the fruit of the American rights multi-decade strategy to enchain democracy and undo a century of progress to, that we have made movements uh, for racial, gender, and economic justice. We saw the culmination of that plan in the authoritarian Trump administration, whose first act was to attack public sector unions. And we're seeing it now in the Supreme Court's reactionary attack on reproductive rights, which strips away people's right to bodily autonomy and essential healthcare services. Several states, Several states immediately passed laws that aim to criminalize abortion and turn nurses and other providers into vigilantes. But NNU has been clear. This is violence against our patients. We will not abide it. And nurses in Texas and Florida and across the country are standing up and fighting back, just like we've been fighting from the first day of this pandemic for the health and safety of our nurses and patients. Since March of 2020, we've organized nearly 5,000 actions in our workplaces and communities across the US, including several on the doorsteps of the White House. We have fought corporate hospitals' attempts to exploit this crisis to boost profits. And yes, we did force them to protect nurses and patients. When the Trump Supreme Court tried to destroy public sector unions, as I mentioned before, we launched a massive internal organizing campaign that made our union stronger than ever. We've settled dozens of contracts uh, throughout the pandemic. We've won improvements on health and safety policies, staffing and provisions to advance racial and gender justice. The, the key here, the key to our success has been our ability to organize and flex our collective power in the workplace. Above all, through our willingness to strike, we've also been putting pressure on our federal government and demanding uh, from the very start, a comprehensive multi-measures approach uh, response instead of the vaccine-only approach and wishing that it was just gone. We fought throughout Trump's first or last year in office and well into Biden's first year until we forced the occupational health and safety to issue an enforceable uh, standard to protect all healthcare workers from COVID exposure, which was the first time it might not uh, seem too significant because I know you actually have these protections here, but it was the first time for us that the OSHA actually issued this kind of standard for any industry since 1983. 
So we're working to make those, those protections permanent. And we have been overwhelmed with organizing requests from across the US because non-union nurses have seen how effective our union has been in fighting for nurses and patients, winning those safe staffing protections, growing a grassroots movement for Medicare for all, and actually taking a position and opposing those pernicious anti-abortion laws and anti-trans attacks that are limiting care and deepening inequalities in our community. So thousands of nurses have joined NNU during the pandemic, including at Mission Health in Asheville, North Carolina, the biggest hospital organizing uh, win in the conservative southern states since 1975. And just last week, we had a union victory in Miami, Florida, of nurses who joined the union. So these wins, these wins come in a very hopeful time. They come amid an inspiring labor upsurge across America that with teachers striking in conservative states, service and logistic workers organizing at corporate behemoths like Starbucks and Amazon, among many other exciting developments. Nurses and healthcare workers, I will say, they're at the forefront of this labor militancy, making up to 42% uh, of the workers who have actually gained, engaged in some labor actions this last year. So despite these huge challenges we face, we also have uh, it's a time of incredible opportunity, and we're in a better position now than maybe at any other point in my lifetime to build nurse power and win workplace democracy. And we know that true workplace democracy is ultimately what it's gonna take to fix the staffing crises and prepare for the next public health crises. Workplace democracy is also the foundation uh, for a healthy political democracy. And as you probably know, this is a election year in America and it's imperative that we defeat the right-wing forces actively trying to dismantle our democracy. And that's what they're trying to do. And to do that, we need to prevent the corporate right from overtaking uh, both houses of Congress so that we can elect more progressives that champions to actually pass the crucial legislation like the PRO Act, which would bolster unions and Medicare for all and a national safe staffing ratio law and to protect nurses and patients across the country. So it's going to take a mass, mass mobilization effort. And our union is working very closely with allies in the social justice uh, struggles and to scale up our own organizing in swing states and across the South. And I'm very excited to announce our new Nurses for Democracy campaign that has targeted key strategic elections in November. And our large network of nurse activists and support supporters will work together and tirelessly to mobilize voters and defend our democracy. We see this as a fight to, our fight to defend democracy in America is, is important, but it's also, it's not just about us. It really is a part of fight to defend nurses and patients across around the world, since we know that what happens in the US can have implications 
for other uh, global implications. And um, for example, just one example here I want to give is that the, um, the U.S. could have so much political influence to remove the obstacles to global vaccine equity imposed by the pharmaceutical industry. And until we do, we're just going to see these dangerous variants around the world. We did get the Biden administration to agree um, to support the waiver of key WTO TRIPS agreement provisions and to bolster protections, but we know that that's just not enough. And we know to keep that, to keep that door open, we need to defend democracy in America, and we need to build solidarity across borders and strengthen that collective power of nurses around the world. I actually think that nurses for democracy, that should be an international movement. Uh, the good news is we're well, we're well under our, we're well on our way. Um, it's, and that's from the very beginning of the pandemic. So we've been having these discussions with unions in the U.S., but also with all of you and uh, other Global Nurses United affiliates. And we jointly pressed the WHO to recognize aerosol transmission together. And we filed just last year with GNU and Progressive International, we were able to file a joint complaint um, on countries that block these temporary waivers. All of this is essential. And so I, to conclude, the crises we face as nurses have, it's also created new opportunities. And I think responsibilities. The pandemic revealed just how dangerous America's healthcare industry practices are. And healthcare workers are done. They are done being applauded as essential while being treated as expendable. Nurses, along with other people and workers in America whose work had in the past been devalued, have come to recognize ourselves as the very foundation of society. So NNU is building power in the workplace and strengthening alliance with our patients and community allies, and we're more ready than ever to fight for health and social justice in our nation while we continue to fight alongside all of you for a better, more just, and healthy world. Thank you. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen and everyone, I know I speak for everyone when I, I thank Bonnie for that moving presentation. I, as I, I'm an ex-ABC, as some of you would know, and as I was listening to her description of events in the United States, I thought how little our mainstream media covers labour movements in the United States or indeed in Canada and how important it is for us through our civil society organisations to spread the word. And Nurses for Democracy, it doesn't get better than that. Go ballistic! Ladies and gentlemen, we have a third speaker and we will have time for one or two questions. I know Michael Waits uh, is collecting some questions off Slido. But our third speaker is Shay Candish, Assistant General Secretary of the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association and also Branch Assistant Secretary of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, New South Wales Branch. And uh, Shay joined the association in 2008 when she was working as a 
a registered nurse in emergency at Campbelltown and she got active around staffing. She's held a range of positions. I won't list them, but I will include the 2018 ratio campaign because ratios are so important. She's also worked on the team for aged care and the private sector team. So please go ballistic for Shay. Thanks, Julie. Uh, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation uh, and to their elders, past, present and emerging. This land was never ceded and it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. It's a real pleasure to participate in this panel discussion today alongside Bonnie and Linda. Uh, and when reflecting on the pandemic and everything we've been through to date, uh, not just here in New South Wales but around the world, there's a huge amount for us, to, for us to contemplate. The last two and a half years have truly been a whirlwind. The fear, the anger, the lockdowns, the hardships, the daily numbers, the panic buying, the heightened need for new vaccines, the national cabinet meetings, and of course the Premier and Chief Health Officer's morning press conferences. Dr Kerry Champ became a regular in all our households. <laughs> And the fact that today, after everything we've been forced to grapple with and work through, we're in the midst of another Omicron surge. The overwhelming pressures on New South Wales nurses and midwives has never been more unrelenting. The uphill battle to have our voices heard remains, as does the need for your clinical insights and experiences to be afforded a seat at the decision-making or policy drafting table. Without wanting to cause any additional stress upon you, I'm going to go through a few reflections on what some of the key elements have been on our pandemic journey so far. In New South Wales, we just endured another calamity, the early 2020 bushfires, a months-long devastating bushfire summer, in our summer season. 28 people died, 10 million hectares of our natural heritage was incinerated, the homes of 2,000 families were obliterated, over a billion animals perished, the physical, financial and mental health consequences will last for many years. No doubt there's people here today that are still recovering from that devastation and really your resilience is remarkable. The solidarity of local communities who were the front line of that unprecedented catastrophe uh, is, is something that we should really take stock of, I suppose. It wasn't long before the courage, commitment and selflessness of those frontline workers was on display again though. At the very beginning of the pandemic, when it entered our shores, our health system was already a powder keg of stresses, with nurses and midwives facing drastic increases in demand, shortages of equipment and an atmosphere of fear and uncertainty among the public. The fact that we entered the pandemic with a health system under severe stress meant that the challenges faced by nurses and midwives skyrocketed. The chaos you all lived through in that first year, organising and reorganising your units daily, not really knowing what was coming next, it was extraordinary. At the time, I recall hearing many stories of fear and uncertainty. We were watching as the health system started to prepare for the unknown. The advocacy that we embarked on here at the Association for Members was unprecedented. Whether it was negotiating special leave with an employer, navigating government directives, enforcing work health safety across workplaces, especially around PPE, answering your questions or providing updates with the latest information. We implored the Ministry of Health to repeatedly address ongoing concerns around PPE guidance and failure of policies and procedures to protect nurses and midwives from airborne transmission of COVID-19. 
Several months later, the Clinical Excellence Commission updated its guidelines, advising workers to wear, two P to wear P2N95s and eye protection when providing care within 1.5 metres of a suspected confirmed COVID patient, and also when providing care for patients with symptoms of acute respiratory illnesses in some circumstances. In addition, new national recommendations that stated people wearing P2N95 masks should be fit tested uh, was also a significant win in our campaign to protect nurses and midwives at work. At the same time, we were urging the New South Wales government to expedite its planned 5,000 public sector worker workforce boost that was promised as part of the last state election and to allocate extra nurses and midwives immediately. Instead, the New South Wales government publicly committed to an ICU bed capacity of 2,000, despite no knowledge of the actual workforce numbers available to operate this bed capacity. They announced the federal private hospital funding guarantee which was intended to provide a surge workforce, yet in the early days, nurses in private facilities were being stood down, on leave, without pay, as they were not engaged in the public health system efforts and surgery limitations left them without work. The sacrifice and dedication of nurses and midwives across New South Wales in dealing with the challenges has been nothing short of inspiring. COVID-19 has shown if you need a steady hand in a crisis, nurses and midwives will deliver. You would think the New South Wales government's response to such, a, to such a stellar performance would be one of full appreciation and a commitment to strengthen our public health systems, lifting the morale and wellbeing of its nursing and midwifery workforce. Not so. The New South Wales government's decision to freeze public sector wages, including those of nurses and midwives, was a stunning slap in the face. Even more insulting was the fact that they love to sing your praises when it's suited, but their decision to deliver a real wage cut showed what they really thought. The New South Wales government's management of our hospitals and healthcare services has been far from the gold standard that they would have everyone believe. We also witnessed the devastating impact of outbreaks in our aged care sector. Facilities were thrown into chaos, largely due to insufficient preparation and a lack of early advice to manage coronavirus cases in these settings, made worse by the lack of effective communication. While aged care providers and governments argued over who was responsible to administer care, too many residents lost their lives. Tragically, a total of 3,428 aged care residents in Australia have died from COVID-19, including 1,178 in New South Wales. More than 2,500 have died since the beginning of this year. It is unconscionable that what, sorry, what aged care residents, families and staff were forced to endure, largely because the sector has been neglected by governments for so long. Many of the systemic issues were unearthed as the Aged Care Royal Commission continued in the background. In late 2020, many people thought there was light at the end of the pandemic tunnel, promising news about vaccines showing strong signs of effectiveness in the Northern Hemisphere gave us hope. It gave us hope that the threat of coronavirus would likely diminish in the new year. A key moment I recall during 2021 was a research paper in the international medical journal, The Lancet, which showcased superb results of the research undertaken in Queensland. And it found that having safe nurse to patient ratios as a policy improved patient outcomes, specifically patient mortality rates seven-day readmissions and lengths of stay. And these outcomes resulted in cost savings. 
that were more than twice the cost of the additional nurse staffing that's required for ratios. Yes, we've had a lot of strong evidence underpinning our ratios claim in the past, but to have that evidence from a neighbouring jurisdiction like Queensland that's so similar to our own health system is incredibly significant. It brings even more impetus, impetus to our ongoing efforts to get the New South Wales government to listen to the evidence-based research and to act. We continued campaigning, rallying across the state for safe staffing and calling out the New South Wales government for failing to recognise the tremendous work value and resolve of nurses and midwives. But as the months rolled on, the government remained stubborn. And while our, our actions resulted in a backflip on wages at the time, sadly, there was still no movement on ratios. At the end of 2021, widespread fatigue was evident across the health workforce due to two years of relentless pandemic response. So much so that the Ministry of Health and managers across the system proactively encouraged many health staff to take leave over the summer holidays. But the New South Wales government's ill-advised decision to lift restrictions in mid-December when the highly transmissible Omicron variant was circulating resulted in mass community spread and a significant demand on our hospital services at a time when the sector was least capable to respond. This situation was compounded by the thousands of furloughed staff each day and mass understaffing and rapid changes to policies and processes such as the healthcare worker risk matrix, everyone shudder right there, <laughs> rolled out with very little consultation and at a time when many staff like nums and nurse managers who were critical in the provision of information remained on leave. Mass confusion ensued with health staff and some managers being unclear about isolation requirements. The rapid escalation in hospital cases during January of this year required rapid expansion in treatment spaces, including temporary marquees to triage and manage large numbers of COVID positive patients. These workspaces and the healthcare worker matrix created a number of work health safety issues as many staff had little to no suitable amenities to take breaks despite working in full PPE outdoors in summer heat. Now, Linda, we might not have winter, but we have summer. <laughs> Many of you were reporting episodes of heat stroke, dehydration and even vomiting, demonstrating the inappropriate makeshift arrangements that were forced to occur within this climate. I know I joke, but it was serious at the time. During that period, the association met with the ministry several times a week, allowing us to highlight the most egregious issues for immediate intervention. We reviewed modelling and assessed both the ministry and local health districts' ability to respond in this crisis. While the discussions were, discussions were productive, it left, left us with no doubt that the system was faltering, and despite the best efforts of all involved, the system was overwhelmed. Hospital managers rose rapidly sorry, hospital numbers rose rapidly and the LHD scrambled to develop surge or escalation plans to manage admissions with the limited numbers of staff available. In many plans, a team approach to care was developed. This included nurses overseeing the care of up to eight patients with a team of staff, many of whom were non-clinical. This was a trying time, as many of you were redeployed from your clinical specialty, sometimes to ICU, and often overseeing other classifications of workers. At no time did the New South Wales government explain to the public that they may not have a nurse at their bedside should they be admitted. As the Omicron wave escalated and combined with still high numbers of Delta in our communities, the private sector was brought on board to assist. 
but despite these efforts, it continued to overwhelm the public health system, requiring services to be reduced where possible. This also impacted the level of support available from the public health system to the fragmented and ill-prepared aged care sector. Aged care providers were required to manage outbreaks in their facilities, despite the knowledge that many despite the knowledge from many that they were simply unable to respond sufficiently if an outbreak occurred, compelling this sector to the disastrous fate I spoke of earlier. Fundamental resources such as PPE have been problematic throughout the pandemic with limited access, supply issues and quality all highlighted at different times. We've had to drag the ministry and local health districts to adopt a policy of best practice that includes fit testing of P2N95 respirators for all healthcare workers, working in COVID positive or potentially positive patients. A decision that has likely saved thousands of healthcare workers from preventable exposure or potential death. Yet alarmingly, it took more than 12 months for the position to be reached, and even today, there are healthcare workers who are yet to be fit tested. We all shared collective rage as the New South Wales government continued to spin the line that our public health system was strong and supposedly coping. This was repeated over and over, while you were exhausted, working excessive overtime, maybe working outside your usual scope or in unfamiliar models of care, still catastrophically short-staffed as patient care suffered. Red hot rage drove many of you to participate in our first statewide strike since 2013 on the 15th of February this year. It was a massive showcase of our unity and strength. It also revealed the breadth of support we had in the wider community and in the media. COVID having exposed the weaknesses in our health system and the government patently incapable of rising to the challenges posed by the pandemic. More than 150 hospital and community health branches took part in the strike action. There was much to savour on the day, not least the determination of nurses and midwives to stand up for our patients, our public health service and our professions. Six weeks later, it was clear the government had failed to heed our calls. So on the 31st of March, over 170 public sector branches signalled they would strike again, the majority taking 24 hours of action. We've had ongoing action since, and I could not be prouder of the collective determination and commitment to continue our ratios campaign, despite and because of the incredible adversity that you're facing. We've highlighted time and time again, going back many, many years, the staffing shortfalls, the lack of resources and the vulnerability and fragility of the health system that puts patients' lives at risk. This is the opposite of each and every one of us studied our butts off for. And it's not the care we need and desperately want to give. What is crystal clear is that the New South Wales government has either been grossly misinformed or shielded from the lived experience of nurses and midwives, or our truth is too inconvenient. They're the very people trusted to carry the burden of our entire health system, yet little regard is paid by government to your sacrifices. For too long, they've undervalued us as highly skilled professionals. For too long, they've failed to prioritise putting patient safety first. For too long, they've not extended a seat at the table to us when it comes to policy or decision-making. Therefore, we're demanding it. We're demanding they respect us, demanding they listen to the frank and fearless advice of clinicians who have the scope and the foresight to deliver the best possible outcomes for patients. And we will continue until shift by shift, nurse and midwife ratios are delivered in New South Wales.
Uh, uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, I think you'll agree that was an extremely powerful third presentation. What I'd like to do now is to welcome to the lectern Michael Waits, the Director of Strategy and Transformation at the Association. We've got a squillion questions. If you could each pick up a microphone, uh, I'm going to join you in the chat pit. And if you could um, uh, um, answer with brevity just so we get lots more questions. So take it away, please, Michael. Uh, thanks very much, Julie. The, I love that this is the most popular question on the line. And it's asking about the current predicament that nurses and midwives are in in the current context. And the question is whether or not you feel that the government's response so far in your countries, and if I could have a short response from each of you, whether or not your government's response is a gendered response. So are they not acting the way we need them to for nursing and midwifery because it's a predominantly female workforce? What are your thoughts on that? This is interpretation for a thick Australian accent going on, I think. Uh, let's start in the United States. Okay, is this working? Yeah? Well, you know, I will say we have a compare and contrast. Uh, and as I mentioned before, when the pandemic hit under the authoritarian Trump administration, as you all saw around the world, that it was... Uh, their response was that it wasn't real. They denied it, right? That science, you know. So, having going from that to, you know, we immediately mobilize and getting the Biden administration. I will say we have a very close relationship with the um, the presidency's, uh, you know, uh, agencies, uh, and so it has made it better. Is it good enough? No. And in fact. You know, what we are seeing is because the undue influence of corporations on um, our politics, that they are lobbying for continued weakened guidances. And so we are still fighting. We, we go to Canada. I'm trying to be polite because, as you know, our prime minister says he's the first prime minister who's a feminist. Uh, but uh, they're a group of sexist employers, nothing more than that. The last federal budget, the construction workers got more initiatives than anybody uh, and any worker in my country ever. And as much as I was happy for the brothers and sisters working in the construction industry, I said to the Minister of Finance, like, really? Like, really? Where's your head? Healthcare workers, nurses needed your help, and you played a deaf ear. So I think they're just sexist. And part of it is our fault, folks, because we take on way too much. We take on way too much. Uh, show us the way forward, Australian friend. <laughs> it's completely gendered. If we had 8,000 men out on the street, you think we'd be in the same situation? Exactly. You know, we talk to politicians of all stripes and colours and essentially it's a bunch of men in suits that are totally NFI making the decisions about our lives and our care. It's a joke. <laughs> if I could just do one deeper thing, the way forward to change, I mean, you obviously are the next generation. What, what's going to change? Uh, and is there anything we can do? I'm very wary of whoever it was who said it's not about the resilience of individual nurses. It was our man in the kilt earlier, wasn't it? Yeah. He said it's about the system. But how do we change that gendered issue when you do have a workforce that is predominantly women, significantly overrepresented? 
look, it's back to what Linda was saying. We have to stand up and stop taking on more. We have to fix overwork. And we have to hold governments to account on that. That's the only way we're going to get policy change. Uh, and, you know, we have to continue to push for it. It's not going to be delivered to us, hand-picked, you know, or fall from the sky. Thank you. Michael, next. Thank you. Yeah, excellent. So, there's a question here about the uh, recent uh, political situation in the US, Bonnie. And, uh, you know, we're hearing that there's some renewed interest in the union movement in the US, and you spoke a little bit about that. If you could expand on that and give us some, you know, like, how are the nursing unions growing, what other unions are growing, are we seeing a bit of a shift in, in response to that? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. As I said, we're being overwhelmed with the requests for organizing, and I think that for many nurses, uh, this has been life-changing in terms of seeing, I mean, in their relationship with the employer, the employer was willing to sacrifice their lives, their families' lives with, with impunity. And also, uh, it was a time when then they, too, were able to uh, identify with the class that they belong to in terms of workers, right? And seeing this upsurge, because it is happening in other industries, an upsurge in terms of the as a response, I believe, as the, the utter betrayal by both government and employers that workers are seeing that the path really to changing and change in the workplace and outside of the workplace is our organization, our ability to have a strong union movement. And so we're thrilled um, that, and that, I mean, we're out there. It is a priority for us, a priority for, and uh, we are in com conversations with other nurse organizations too who may uh, join NNU. And, and then, but also with just seeing the other uh, unions, the unions that maybe hadn't organized before a whole lot, that they are actually directing their resources. And as you know, we have at the AFL-CIO a first uh, women uh, president, Liz Schuler, and clearly um, her efforts supporting gender equity and union organizing is going to make a difference. Excellent. Could I just do a quick follow-up? Um, when I read international press relating to the United States, the issue of race plays a huge role in your political life, obviously with Afro-Americans, but also the huge Hispanic population and so on. Can you offer some quick reflections on unionisation in your nursing workforce and how it intersects with some of those cultural and racial issues? Oh, it, oh absolutely. And I think, you know, the whole world was transformed when everyone witnessed George Floyd's brutal murder. And uh, for our nurses that was in the thick and still, you know, are in the thick of the pandemic, um, they were able to see outside of their own needs and recognise their leadership in their community to stand against racism, and so they conducted many uh, actual actions outside of their hospitals, right? And, and on that, um, we saw the outsized impact of COVID on our nurses of color. And uh, so, for instance, with Filipino, uh, Filipino nurses who are like 25% uh, bore, like it was 50% of the deaths, so among nurses. And so, and infections. So we see, you know, um, as I said before, it was very transforming too for nurses. As you know, it's easy to get kind of caught up as, oh, well, we're, you know, we should be aspiring to be, you know, more management-like. It really grounded us in terms, of, in terms of who we are and who we want to be standing with our communities. And that means 
black, brown, uh, trans. I mean, uh, I also mentioned the way they're looking at nurses and other providers to actually police and vigilan be vigilantes against, uh, you know, families of trans children. Or, you know, I mean, even it was, it's really, um, it's been, it's been eye-opening. But it's also been, um, it's been a challenge that we've met in terms of stepping up because it really, nurses are, nurses are ready to do that. Thank you so much. Give her a clap, would you please? <laughs> so we've got a question here about uh, taking inspiration from Shay, I assume. Uh, you know, when will the next uh, statewide strike in New South Wales be? <laughs> And I think uh, I would say to you, comrades, uh, have a chat with your organiser, wink, wink. Uh, but in order to have that successful strike right, we're going to have to be able to recruit more people to the union and more people to be active in the union. Linda, could you talk a little bit about, with nurses being so exhausted and fatigued, how do we encourage them to join the union and become active in the union? Well, in Canada, we're 91% unionized, so it, it is a, it, it's a blessing and it has its fault because they're angry at us. I have never seen nurses angry and they're mean, like they're mean. Uh, and, and, and part of me, you know, I understand it because there's only so much bullshit you can take and then you pay your dues and you expect your union to react. Right now, we have essential services in the, my country, so most of our nurses' unions, they could strike, but if they strike, they would have more staff designated to come into work legally than we have on most evening nights or weekend shifts. So, but then I say, and the PhDs of the world, you know, I love them, I love their work and all that, but they're telling me, Linda, call a general strike, call a general strike. I'm saying, well, I really don't have to because one in two nurses are saying I'm looking for the exit sign. So that, and if we can continue on pushing the voice, not only the three nurses that spoke, but the voice of the one in two saying governments, employers, I've had enough, I'm leaving, that will be the general strike. But it's proving or putting every, every day uh, as unions, and New South Wales does it, and NU does it, we do it, but it's almost like it's never enough because our members are in deep caca. So we have to continue really pushing uh, job action campaigns. I took a note of the uh, stop asking me to quote, cope, I mean. Uh, I'll go back because that's how I get my great ideas. I steal it from others. <laughs> if you're in the room, I'll give you credit. Don't worry, Shay, when you come to Canada. It's not you mine. See... <laughs> yeah, but, you know, by then it will say, Brett, who? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, it is about pushing the limits and being loud, being so loud. Uh, that, that's key. And people will come, like you hear, Bonnie. People will come when they say, Who's that? And loud, loud, loud. Could I just ask a quick follow-up with Shay in terms of joining the union within the New South Wales or, and indeed Australian context? Are there particular areas where where, you, where there are, is uh, lower percentage numbers of nurses unionised that you're working on in particular? Yeah, so I think, you know, broadly we are very fortunate to have quite good union um, coverage as well and good density, but there are definitely areas where we find that that's more challenging. Uh, you know, primary care, 
uh, aged care, you know, a lot of those areas that don't have the um, fortune that we see in the public sector. If I can just add, though, in terms of what the key is, I think the key is all of you, the people sitting in this room right now, yeah. because you're the ones that are talking to your colleagues. And when you go back and you tell them, this is, this is what the government has planned for us, the same thing that they planned back in, you know, 1945 uh, and they don't have a way through and you all are sitting here with the solutions about what you think is going to improve your workplace that's actually the space where we generate the change so if you start telling that message to your colleagues that's where we get more people involved look yes thank you <laughs> um ladies and gentlemen everyone we've got four minutes left so let's have another one last question eh? well i think there's been a lot of questions uh that talk to uh, the fact that there's such shortage of nurses and there's people out there looking for jobs as nurses and midwives, but the recruitment process is arduous. People having to sit through long interviews in order to get a job that desperately needs to be filled. Do you have some thoughts about how we can fast-track recruitment, uh, perhaps, Shay? So here in New South Wales, we know in the public system it's really problematic and we've got a resolution coming up about this uh, in the next couple of days as well. But the one thing I would say, and I hope you can take from all of us as speakers, is that there's a worldwide trend here, right? And at the moment, all of our recruitment processes aren't actually acknowledging that. We're just moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic, taking, you know, different people from different positions, creating holes somewhere else. We need a system overhaul. That's when we're going to start to see solutions. Can I ask one Can last I... question? Just from each of you, mm -hmm. uh, um, you will say what you wish, and I hope it refers to faeces again, because that's been a tiny <laughs> bit of a theme with you. Uh, but but the one, I guess what I would be interested very quickly from each of our international guests, we've enjoyed having you so much here, is a priority for you going forward in the next 12 months. But did you want to say your comment first and then tell us that? So just to add, not that I want to influence your resolution, but having the nurses' union at the table is important. We have to change our ways too. So on the job posting, uh, one of our nurses had to change and agree to change our collective agreement language on job posting because the government promised to hire 500 nurses immediately, but the job posting was going to take six months. And they said, the union said, and they got flack, you know, by those spicy nurses. Oh, I want that job. No, for the next six months, there's no job posting. You get the job, you get the job, you get the job, because we're in a crisis. And, and so my final comment is getting loud, sticking together, and that's so important. You know, when I said the nurses are being mean, they're being mean against each other, being mean against their leaders, and they're forgetting that, we are one unified voice. You know, it's a slogan and sometimes you think, yeah, yeah, Linda, you know, you're, you're strong as your weakest link. But it's true. We have to be loud together. And my mandate for the next year until our, our convention next June is to be loud as can be and bother people, really shake those cages that they think enough. I don't want to hear about Silas and the nurses anymore in my country. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Bonnie. You know, I will say, I will reflect on the systemic uh, responsibilities. It's so important because we know it isn't. I mean, I, it is not our fault that these workplaces are not safe and that we are not given what we need to give the care that we are expertly trained to give. Nurses want to do that. They don't run away from disaster. We all ran in. And so if you 
have, as we say, workplace democracy and a voice in the workplace. And I also think what I would say is we learned so much from each other globally. What we, in the very beginning of the pandemic, talking to our sisters and siblings in Italy and Spain, and they were able to forewarn us what the employers would be asking, and it was true, and we were able to gather and organize. And so I do think we see this as organizing and defending democracy in our country, but also working globally to have that systemic change and put nurses where they deserve to be, which is leaders. Thank you so much. And Shay, a final priority for you the next 12 months. Look, I, I think I said it earlier, we need system overhaul and that has to start with stopping the overwork. You know, we talk a lot about workloads, but we actually have to frame it in, it is overwork, we are overworked. And ratios is absolutely the circuit breaker. So we have to just do everything, ratios are bust. I love that. Ratios are bust. Yeah. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to ask you to thank Linda, Bonnie and Shay for what I think you'll agree was great. <laughs> this podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that this land was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.